good morning. And to you dads who got here with kids this morning, congratulations and, and well done. Um, we haven't, haven't kind of studied them to see how many socks they've got on and whether all the colours match and, and so forth, but, but well done, well done. And for you ladies who are with us today and not on the retreat, thank you so much. Um, it would have felt just a little bit awkward, I think, if we'd all sort of... Uh, I don't know if it have been too masculine here, so thank you for just coming and adding your presence as well. Um, it has been exciting, I think, for those of us. Every time I, I sort of just felt something's, something's not right in the household, something's missing, what, what, what is it? Uh, every time I had those, those thoughts, it was a reminder and a prompt to just shoot up a prayer for the women on the retreat. I think there were over, over 70 or so um, there, which is just, just so fantastic for them. And so we're absolutely, absolutely thrilled that they could get away and, and have this special time. And by all reports, it's, it's going very, very well. Well, don't feel you've missed out. You're here. It's great to be together. We have God with us here as well. Isn't it fantastic? He can be in several places simultaneously on the women's retreat, out at Hurst Bridge, here, and possibly even in other places around the world as well. He's very good at what he does. We've got his word, we've got his spirit. So I hope you've got a sense of anticipation this morning to hear from God. If not, let's just pray and, and reassure you it can be so. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are here. You fulfill all of your promises. You have promised that wherever two or three are gathered in your name, and we are in, gathered in your name, Jesus, that, that you will be in their midst. You're here, present amongst us, and we thank you for that. You promise that your word will never return void. We're opening it up this morning with that, that sense of expectation. We're hoping to meet from you. Here we are, eager to hear from you. So your word will not return void. Your spirit is amongst us. Now by your spirit, through your word, would you please come and fulfill all of your purposes for us this morning, both corporately and individually as well. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We look forward to hearing from you this morning. And all the Lord's people said, should have given you a heads up. And all the Lord's people said, that's, that's all right, that's all right. I think you may even believe that. One of the um, interesting things when you, when you throw out your schedule, you're just doing something a little bit different, is sometimes what, how do you schedule those things that, well, now I don't know, frankly, where it fits. I recall on night shift when I worked with Victoria Police, when do you have lunch? When do you have lunch? You had a lunch break, but, but what's the best time for it? And uh, when I got to Heidelberg Police Station, I was, I was told in no uncertain terms that, that lunchtime was 4 a.m. And I, you know, I wanted to query that a little bit. Yeah, yeah sure. Why 4? Uh, because there's a bit of a lull, because frankly, bad people go to sleep at that time of the night. I, like, what, why 4 a.m.? Oh, it's very, very simple. That's when Thunderbirds is on. And so we returned to the station with a, with a little bit of a snack and, um, and our, our routine for our half-hour lunch break, um, notwithstanding there could be an emergency call-out, was, was Thunderbirds. And for those of you who remember and actually know what Thunderbirds are, it's puppets or marionettes. 
and um, are very, very real. They were a little bit revolutionary because they had the use of electronics and, and mechanics to make the jaw move with the, the voiceovers, the actors who actually, actually gave the, the dialogue. Um, but, but it was quite fascinating. I've never really had it much interest in puppetry, but Thunderbirds stood out. It kind of set the, the new standard in puppetry. And, uh, and if, you, if you were one of the people who controlled the, um, uh, the Thunderbirds, um, yes, it was done by um, um, uh, strings, or actually uh, they, they use very, very thin wires, but strings. So they actually had the, the, the marionettists um, up high above the puppets, pulling all of those little strings and so forth, but using electronics for the, for the jaw. Out of puppetry, out of marionettes, comes many idioms, phrases that we, we use in day-to-day -day life which, which actually refer to or have a double meaning, such as, oh, such and such, perhaps in the political realm, is, is just a puppet. Or in a particular situation, we, we might use another idiom, and that is, I wonder here who is pulling the strings, who is really behind this, who is the, the puppeteur? And in the passage we're looking at today, it's a, little bit of a, it's a little bit of a difficult passage to actually digest. At first glance, there on the surface, it actually looks like everything, everything, this whole story about Jesus, the Messiah, and all of the promises of God are, are suddenly, you know, about to, about to go pear-shaped. This, this whole story just... This is not the way it's supposed to go. And surely for the disciples, they felt exactly the same thing. So turn with me, would you, to Mark chapter 14. This is the arrest of Jesus. This is perhaps, and, and we've been leading up to this moment, but this is perhaps that particular juncture in the story where we start to question, we start to ask ourselves, who's really in control here? What is happening? This is surely not the way that this story is supposed to go. Mark chapter 14, it's just a few verses this morning, but let's read from verse 43 through to 51. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Well, that last little, little verse... 51 has led to a, a lot of speculation. Who was that young man? Uh, perhaps of the various opinions that I've heard, I, I think the one that sits most comfortably with me is it possibly was 
Mark, the, the author of this gospel, little cameo appearance there, perhaps not the one he would have wished for, but it is a little bit of a nod to, I was there. I saw these things. I too fled. Not, not particularly proud of that fact, but I was there as well. When it all, when it all took place, when it all just went to, went to pot, I too fled just like the others. In fact, leaving my cloak behind, we just felt we had to get away. That probably, that probably makes to me the most, most sense of that interesting, interesting little inclusion there. But overall, Mark's account is a very, very simple account. Unlike some of the detail we find in Luke chapter 22 and in, in John 18. For instance, missing, missing here is that, that remarkable little statement by, by Jesus, that declaration to his being. I am he, he says. This is one of Bron's favorite, favorite parts of the, the, the Gospels. Um, in the John account, he says, who, it is, who is it that you have come to arrest? And it's a Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. And when he says that, the great I am declaration, they all fall backwards and stumble over each other and fall over and so forth. And I guess in, in Bron's mind, she, she sort of pictures, how do you gather yourself after that? You know, there you are with your clubs and your swords and so forth. Can you, it, it almost feels a bit like a, Monty, a scene from a Monty Python movie. You know, can you imagine everybody getting up and dusting themselves off and, and uh, let's have another shot at that. And Jesus again asks, who is it that you have come to arrest? This time, the statement doesn't have overwhelming power, but we see in that statement very, very clearly who is in control. God is in control. God is absolutely in control. Mark's account, however, is, is a little bit simpler. And it does lead us to ask the question, who here is pulling the strings? And it is found here in Mark's account in a very, very simple declaration by Jesus. We have in verse 43 this mob sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. They all send this little party. Most likely, this would be the temple guard. The temple guard were known to actually use, use clubs. In fact, they were seen somewhat as, as thugs, protecting the aristocracy of the, of the um, chief priests. So it was possibly the temple guard that was there and, and perhaps some, some others as, as well. The Interesting little fact that Judas would betray Jesus with a kiss. Remember, they wouldn't have had torches. Um, they would have, would have had certainly some, some flames. But in the darkness, there'd be much confusion. Did they know what Jesus looked like? Absolutely. They saw him every day in the temple courts. But in the confusion of that evening, in the situation, the context of an arrest, quite possibly it was needed that Judas would actually approach Jesus and identify the particular one that they must arrest, they had to get that right, and he would do it with a kiss. In Jewish culture, a kiss was, was kind of special. That was for, for family, best friends, but also for a disciple of a particular rabbi as a, as a gesture of honour or respect. And so it was, was in one sense not uncommon that a disciple of a particular teacher would give that kiss of respect 
and yet in another sense, highly hypocritical. Yet that's what Judas does. And so we have this, this mob that have been sent by the ruling establishment. And in contrast, we have Jesus who is sent from God. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus very, very clearly predicts his death. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. In chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus again repeats it. He says a second time he predicts his death, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will arise. And then in chapter 10, in verse 32... Jesus predicts his death a third time. They are on their way up to Jerusalem. Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will arise. On three different occasions, just in this gospel, Jesus has predicted that he will die. Scripture must be fulfilled. And what's the earliest scripture that, that perhaps speaks to this? Perhaps we would would go all the way back to, to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Verse 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done these things, cursed are you above all livestock. Verse 35, uh, sorry, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the women and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Ever since that moment, all throughout Scripture, there is a thread by which the offspring of Adam and Eve would produce one who would ultimately crush the serpent's head. Scripture had to be fulfilled. The mob was sent from the ruling establishment, Jesus was sent from God. The scriptures had to be fulfilled. God was in control. It was he who sent his son. But perhaps of all the scriptures that Jesus was referring to at, at this particular time, perhaps it was Isaiah 53. In Luke chapter 22, verse, verse 37, Jesus directly references Isaiah. In verse 12, he says, He poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Scripture had to be fulfilled. But what else does Isaiah 53 tell us? It tells us that the servant of the Lord was to be despised and rejected by mankind, in verse 3. He was to be a man of suffering, and he was to be familiar with pain. In verse 4, surely he took up our pain 
and he bore our suffering. In verse 5 of Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was, that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Here is clearly where we see that Jesus understood the nature of what we call in theological terms sometimes, substitutionary atonement. He would be our substitute. He would be the atonement for our sin. He would take our sin upon himself. Did he understand that? Yes, he understood it. All scripture had to be fulfilled. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off, verse 8 says, from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The mob was sent by the ruling establishment. Jesus was sent from God. God was in control. God was in control of every detail. Goes on to say, and the Lord made his life an offering for our sin. Who was in control? God was in control. He sent his son. He so loved the world, John 3.16 tells us, that he sent his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That is what missiologists sometimes call missio Dei, the mission of God. God sent the son. The son sent the spirit. The spirit sends and empowers the church. So are we simply puppets in a grand play? God's in control. Are we simply puppets along the way? No, not at all. The chief priests and the teachers and the elders all conspired against him. Judas betrayed him. The mob arrested him. Peter tried to save him, and then everyone deserts him. What's the common thread? The common thread is this. They were all at cross purposes with Jesus' purpose, the cross. Chief priests, the teachers, the elders, Judas, the mob, Peter, everyone was at cross purposes with Jesus' primary purpose, which was the cross. Well, that was then. That was that moment in the garden. But what about today? Could we ever be at cross purposes with God's purpose? Could we ever be at cross purposes with the purpose of Jesus, which was to go to the cross. Could, could that be us? 
But thinking about this, the cross, the cross means a number of things, doesn't it? It means reconciliation. It means forgiveness. And it means righteousness. It means reconciliation. Through the cross, we are reconciled to God. Larry Crabb, decades ago, was a, was a prominent Christian author, psychologist. Uh, he wrote a, a number of books, Inside Out, and, and then, a, then a whole slate of books that extended from that fundamental principle. And I, I recall as I was growing up, I was reading you know, a, lot of, a lot of Larry Crabb and so forth, he, in terms of pastoral care and so forth, kind of, he was the, he was the standard. And then... It seemed like he stopped publishing for a while. I was reading on one occasion um, a journal called Leadership Journal, and, and in it I was interested to read, this is some 10 years after I had last heard of Larry Crabb, I was reading an article, an interview with Larry, and I was thinking, oh, whatever happened to Larry? And I, I started to read the interview, and he, and he told the story of, of how back in those those very, very busy days of writing and publishing, and, and then that actually led to speaking in various churches and speaking at conferences and so forth, all on the topic of, of psychology and the place that it had in the Christian life and so forth. But he had a moment where he actually wondered whether he was getting in the way of God. And it was a little bit of a, little bit of a crisis for him in some respects. And the interviewer pressed in and said, how? How did you feel that you were getting, getting in the way of God? And he said, well, God's ways are quite, are quite upside down compared to the way we would think or do something. He said, I'd be confronted with somebody who'd come to see me as a, as a professional psychologist and, and a father would say, hey, I'm having real difficulties getting along with my son. So I would ask him about you know, his, his own childhood and so forth. And through a series of questions, I was often able to unveil some sort of clue, some sort of hint or tip or something that would ultimately enable him to connect with some flaws in his own fathering and connect better with his son and so forth. And then the interviewer said, that sounds great. What's wrong with that? And he said, well, that was penultimate. But what was ultimate was how did God want to use the difficulties that he was experiencing with his son to draw him closer to himself? That's ultimate. God drawing people to himself is ultimate. What God does with the painful things in our lives along the way is penultimate, important, important to God, but penultimate. And Larry said, I, I, I suddenly realized I was fixing all of these problems, but not the problem. Ensuring that people were reconciled to God. Could we ever be at cross purposes with God's purposes? The cross as well as reconciliation, it also speaks to us of forgiveness, does it not? Quite simply, God has forgiven my sin, your sin, the sin of the world once and for all. How many times did he die? Once. Why only once? That's all it took. Are your future sins covered in that? Absolutely. He doesn't have to come and die again for you. He died once for all sin. All of your future sins have 
have been forgiven. All of my future sins have forgiven. All sin has been forgiven once and for all time. So when somebody sins against us, is that sin forgiven? By Christ, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. The attitude of God to, towards the sin of others is, got it covered. I've forgiven that. It happened at the cross. And Jesus lives inside of me. So when somebody sins against me, the attitude of Jesus Christ who lives within me is, I've got that covered. Stuart, I've forgiven them. Have you? And in that moment, the answer to that question tells me whether I am at cross purposes with God. Because if in my heart of hearts, Jesus says, I have forgiven that person, and I say, well, I haven't just yet. <laughs> I'm working that through. Then I am at cross purposes with God's purposes. Jesus might might well ask me, well, well, Stuart, hang on a moment. I, I went to the cross for that. Are you diminishing my work on the cross? I covered that off. I say it's forgiven. What are you doing, man? How could you not forgive somebody that I declare to be forgiven? Suddenly I find myself, if I harbour unforgiveness, at cross purposes with God's purposes. Reconciliation. Forgiveness. What about righteousness? That right standing with God, right with God, right like God, right like any child of God. Because in the righteousness of God, we are, we are born into his family. He is the father and we as the child. I don't know if you saw possibly the, the youngest drummer we have ever had at Vine Baptist Church this morning. Did you, notice, did you notice little Marcus this morning? He was having a ball, wasn't he? Just sitting on dad's lap. Absolutely, ah, this is what we were made for, dad. It was lovely and, and thank, you, thank you, Scott, for, for just taking another illustration I had and replacing it, just trumping it this morning with this one. It was lovely to watch Scott with little Marcus on his, on his knee there behind the drum, drumming away. It was a picture for us of the joy of a father and the picture of the comfort of the son. You can ask Scott after the service, did he just experience a little bit of joy having his son on his lap? I think looking, if I'm any judge of Marcus, I think I sense that he was totally comfortable just sitting on dad's knee. The righteousness that Christ imputes to us or gives to us, declares over us, that makes us right with our heavenly father, that secures us, in the family of God and speaks to us 
that you are a child of God and I am your father. And as your father, I experience great joy. And as my child, son or daughter, it's my desire that you experience incredible comfort and peace. When we diminish in another believer, a brother or sister in Christ, when we diminish the sense of joy that the Father feels over that brother or sister, when we diminish the sense of comfort that should be theirs as a child of God, we are at cross purposes with God's purposes. When we in any way diminish the image of God present in them and, and the status of another brother or sister in Christ as a child of God, we are at cross purposes with God's purposes. The chief priests, the teachers, the elders, Judas, the mob, Peter, everybody deserting Jesus were at cross purposes with the purposes of God. And sometimes when we diminish the work of the cross, we can be too. Whether it be God's desire to reconcile us to himself, to forgive us, or to give us a righteousness that we could never have attained of our own. These are the purposes of the cross. These are the purposes of God. And these are the purposes which he calls each and every one of us to align ourselves with. So are we puppets? No, we are children who sometimes fail. But even there, even there, God has us covered. He is completely in control. Verse 50 is a little bit of a, a sobering verse. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Kind of doesn't sound good, does it? But John gives us a little bit of a clue into this verse in 8 and 9. When the soldiers gather themselves again and they come at Jesus again to arrest him, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am here. They're able to stand their ground on this occasion, thanks to the mercy of God, and and they actually arrest him. But Jesus actually says to them, well, if you have come for me, then let these others go. He said this in order to fulfill the promise that I have not lost one of them. Again, scripture being fulfilled. You see, there seems to be at least to accomplish God's ultimate purposes, two things going on here in the garden. Jesus must be arrested, must go to trial, and must go to the cross. And secondly, none of the disciples were to be lost because they would remain empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the witnesses and the pillars of the founding of his church. There are two things that have to happen here. So according to John's account, when Peter takes out the sword, takes off the, takes off the ear, of the high priest's servant, and they've only got two swords amongst them, inadvertently, Peter is setting up a massacre here. And one that, quite frankly, the temple guard may have felt was quite invited. It could have all ended there in the garden. They've only got two swords. This is not the way it is supposed to unfold. Unfold. 
If the soldiers wanted to, to, to just say, well, well they, they struck at us first and we, we cut down this rebellious mob, quite frankly, I'm not sure that there would have been any tears back there in Jerusalem. If they'd all been slaughtered in the garden, but it wasn't to be, that would not fulfill the purposes of Scripture. And so Jesus intervenes in that moment. He says, am I leading a rebellion? And he heals the ear of the servant. There is no reason for anyone else to be struck at. There is no reason for anyone to be arrested except for Jesus. And so they flee. Yes, perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of a sense of despair, perhaps out of a, a sense of this is just not going the way that I thought. For many, many reasons, they, they flee. But in doing so, once more, they accomplish God's purposes in that immediate moment. They are not to be arrested. They are not to be killed. They are not to walk the path that only Jesus can walk. And so we see again that even when the people of God fail to understand God's ultimate purposes, nonetheless, God is in control. God loves to repurpose our failures to accomplish his will. Repurpose our failures to fulfill his original purpose. Um. Some of you know that my wife, Bron, loves painting. Way, way back, she started with pastels, she moved to oils, and then she discovered this, this new medium because she loves, she loves a little bit of flexibility in her painting, and it's some cold wax and oil. And it's all about layers. Often I'm asked to come and give an opinion on a painting, and I will stand there as a dutiful husband, and I am absolutely lost. I just don't do abstract very well. But I'll be staring at that, and I'll... <laughs> that right there is a layer of paint. I will try and pick what it is and so forth. And I, I recall on one occasion, Bron, Bron had a painting, which she was able, in our, in our trip last year going around Australia, she noticed in, in the, you know, a, a weathered piece of old wooden fence or in, in a, a rusted piece of metal or in, you know, a, a, a rock that had been eroded. She noticed in the micro, the macro details of parallels between the Australian landscape and so forth, and she was capturing this. So this one particular painting was a fence post, and it was all weathered and so forth, and, and so it was really just, by my reckoning, to very big stripes and so forth. And, but there was wax and layers there. It's to do with layers and scraping away at the surface to get to the bottom layer. Anyway, I, I, I kind of thought, I, I, I like it. A few days later, I came in and it was a different painting. Gone was the, gone was the you know, obvious panels of wood. And now I was seeing, hmm, something like a blurry cityscape. And I said, you know, if you turn that up this way, I see Collins Street and buildings in the background and so forth. And she said, that's not what you're supposed to see. And she turned it around again. I said, yep, my bad. Anyway, later on, I came in and that painting was gone. Oh, I mean, it was literally there, but, but again, it had become something else. And, and I said, what happened to the cityscape? That was brilliant. 
And, uh, and she said, ah, wasn't working for me. So, so goes the, I guess, the, the way of the painter. There are sometimes some failures. But when she went to an exhibition earlier in the year where she exhibited, I think, five or six different pieces, probably it's always hard to know what will sell, but, but this particular one, which always caught my eye, did sell. And it was of a, um, a big red mountain rock type type landscape um, from the outback, from way up, way up north in the Northern Territory. And, and, um, and it sold, and as we collected all the paintings that didn't sell and packed them up and driving home, for Bron, that was, that was a victory. That was a sell. That was, that was great. And, and it was one of her favourite paintings, and I, I liked it as well. There's a lot of interest in it. And uh, I said to her on the way home, well, that's fantastic, honey. I'm so, so proud of you selling that painting. That's, that's awesome. That's a real win. I said, hey, whatever happened to, to that other one, that the fence posts that became the cityscape? And she said, oh, that was it. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> she said, that was it. Layers, layers. The fence post was the bottom layer and the, the cityscape was the next layer. And then it became, it became sort of the, the outback at the top end. I said, you're kidding. I, yeah, absolutely. She had actually taken photos of its, of its progress all along the way. And so, in a sense, that what she once thought was a little bit of a fail actually became one of her better paintings and a, and a real success. God loves to repurpose our failures in order to fulfill his original purpose. If there's a couple of things for you to take out of this passage this morning, take this. Whatever your circumstances right now, whatever your challenges, whatever your difficulties, and perhaps, yes, your perceived failures, God is in control. He is able to fulfill all of his promises to you. And he is able to fulfill all of his purposes for you. And so, along with Jude, we would say, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that even here in what looks like the darkest moment in the Gospel of Mark, there is light, there is hope, there is reassurance. You are in control. You always are. We thank you 
that whatever each and every one of us are going through at the moment, you are able to keep us and you are able to present us before the splendor of your glory and you will do so with exceeding joy. We give you thanks for that. Thank you for each and every person here this morning, Lord. We started by asking that you would speak to every heart and mind, and I pray that that is so. That everyone this morning will walk away reassured once more, you are able. You are able. You are in control of this grand world that we live in. You are in control of time. You're in control of nations. You are in control of leaders. You are in control of movements. You are in control of states and shires and suburbs and homes and families. You're in control of our parenting. You're in control of our parents. You're in control of our children and our families and their destinies. You are able. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for that hope this morning. Jesus, lead us on as we close in worship. Continue to commune with us and speak to us, we pray. Amen.